Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The C. Bish Show. I'm your host, Colin Bish. Welcome everyone to the very first episode of The C. Bish Show. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to be doing this right now. Um, this is not just something big for me personally. It's always been a personal goal of mine to share my passion and love of sports through podcasting. But I'm very excited because this is very this is also to me very important to, you know, my professional career, all that stuff. And though I do want to say though it's important for both, it's probably more uh more important personally for me than it is professionally because this is again this is something I've always wanted to do. I'm just so super excited to be here to talk to you guys and to share my love as I've said. With that being said, before I get into uh, what has happened over the past week or so, I do want to mention, for those of you that opened my podcast on Spotify, you probably saw a trailer there. And if you didn't listen to the trailer, I would strongly suggest you guys to go listen to the trailer because I'm not going to be providing a um, rundown of like who I am and uh, what this podcast is about, all that stuff because I did it in the trailer. And it won't take you guys long. It's about a two-minute listen, if that. Um, so before you guys listen to this, I would suggest you guys, I, I would strongly suggest you guys go uh, click out of this, go listen to my trailer real quick, and then come back and start to listen to the first episode. All right, with that out of the way, um, I want to get started with the NBA playoffs, which the first set of game ones took, or the first set of playoff games, I should say, took place this past weekend first off with the Philadelphia 76ers defeating the Brooklyn Nets by a score of 121 to 101 James Harden played well with 23 points and 13 assists Joel Embiid had a good game uh Harden shot very well from three he was uh 7 of 13 I believe something around that and though he did score 23 and he shot well from three what really caught my eye and I think could have caught others eyes was James Harden's two-point shooting was very bad it was he was one of eight from two-point shooting range uh he did he was contested on some layups missed them uh he really did have uh, some struggle with some of the longer guards that or longer defenders that Brooklyn has like Macau Bridges um and I although I don't feel like that's going to be an issue now because I do believe that the Sixers will beat the Nets within like five to six games. And that's just because the talent disparity between Philly and Brooklyn is very big. Obviously, we know about um, Philadelphia or Brooklyn, excuse me, Brooklyn trading away Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And while they, they did get back some pieces such as uh, Spencer Dinwiddie and Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson. While Mikhail Bridges has played great, Nick Claxton's been an incredible defender. I don't think this will, you know, that to to put that up with a team like Philadelphia, with an MVP contender like Joel Embiid, to a guy who led the league in assists or almost led the league in assists in James Harden, to a great scorer uh, in Tyrese Maxey at the guard position, and Tobias Harris as another option for scoring, and PJ Tucker being a good defender and a good bench, like it just. It all stacks up against Philadelphia, very sadly, because Brooklyn, 
uh, is a really nice team to watch, and Mikhail Bridges has developed so well, and I think he's going to develop to become an even better scorer, as uh, or just as good of a scorer as he is as a, a defender with the Brooklyn Nets. However, I just don't think that they have enough to compete with the Philadelphia 76ers. They may take one, two, heck, they may even take three games. You never know what happens. But I still feel like the Philadelphia 76ers will get it done and they'll move on to the second round. And back to Harden's two-point shooting. Again, I don't think this is going to be an issue now because of the talent disparity between Brooklyn and Philadelphia. But if the Celtics win in the first round against the Hawks, the Sixers will have to play the Celtics. And then the talent disparity gap lessens. And now you got um, now you got Philly with a very talented team against Boston with a very talented team with you know Tatum and Tatum and Brown, Al Horford and Derek White, they, and they they're mu- the Celtics are much more talented than the Brooklyn Nets, all right. And I just think that the Harden's going to have to improve his mid range game. He's going to have to improve at the attacking the basket. Yes, he can shoot the three, but but if he if he, but if he his three point shot isn't there, um, at some point if his three point shot is there consistently throughout the first round, then it's not there, and he continues to struggle two point shooting. He he's it's really going to be bad for the Sixers. But for right now, I don't think it's going to be that big of an issue. I still think Harden can work on it and he can improve, uh, shooting wise. And you know if he continues to prove his overall shooting. I do think that the Philadelphia 76ers are going to cruise past the Brooklyn Nets and they're going to have a lot of momentum going into the Boston Celtics if they were to cruise past them in about five games, six games. Uh, speaking about the Celtics, I mentioned them earlier. Oh, before I get back or before I get to the Celtics, excuse me, uh, there was a couple other things I noticed about uh, the 76ers game. Uh, the Sixers did create more turnovers than Brooklyn did. However, they failed to capitalize much. They only had 11 points off the turnovers. Brooklyn had more of them. And that's something that I feel could be key uh, in this in um, in this matchup between Brooklyn and Philadelphia. If, they're, if Brooklyn's able to create turnovers and able to uh, capitalize off those turnovers more than Philadelphia is, they could probably take a couple games. Um, another, but though... Th- Something that really did catch my eye was the absolute three-point barrage that the Sixers unloaded on the Brooklyn Nets. They shot 48.8% from three, and we know how over, how good overall uh, Philadelphia's shooting is from three. They've got three-point shooters like James Harden and Tyrese Maxey, and P.J. Tucker can shoot the three a little bit, though he's not that much of a scorer. He can shoot it. Tobias Harris, not much of a three-point shooter, but he can. Uh, Joel Embiid. He, he, he shoots a three a lot, more more often than most centers do. And they also have a good three-point shooting duo off the bench, and George Zniang and Shake Milton. Um, though maybe one of those guys is injured. But if they're not, then my point stands. Um, regardless, um, the keys for a Brooklyn, <clears throat> I don't think there's really anything for that the, that the Sixers have to do other than just continue to play the way that they have. Though I think... If they continue to, or if they improve their points off turnovers, and if James Harden is able to shoot better overall, then this this series is going to get very much out of reach. And for the Brooklyn Nets, you're really going to want to pressure them defensively, 
because if you're able to force those turnovers and force those missed shots and be able to capitalize more than the Philadelphia 76ers, that's where a win or a couple wins or possibly a series win could come from. But as it stands right now, Philadelphia definitely has the edge going into game two. Now, moving on to the Boston Celtics. The Celtics dismantled the Atlanta Hawks, 112-99. Jalen Brown had 29 points with 12 boards, while Jason Tatum also added a 20-burger. Um, Hawks shot 5 of 29 from 3. They got out-rebounded 58-45. And DeJounte Murray and Trey Young were shut down. They were, co- they were combined 15-43 from the field goal overall, and they were 1-11 of 11 on 3-pointers. So you're wondering... Dang, this series looks out of hand. Maybe it's not. Maybe the Hawks can take a game. Because the Cel- in the second half, the Celtics very much took their foot off the gas. And the reason I say that is because they got out they got outscored in the second half by the Atlanta Hawks. And despite um them out and despite the Celtics out rebounding the Hawks by 13, the Hawks out rebounded the Celtics in the second half 27 to 26. And this is something that Celtics head coach Joe Mazzulla commented on, saying that they need to keep the pressure on all throughout. And I definitely agree with him. If if that could, this is a dangerous, despite the Hawks being very up and down and up and down and up and down, everybody's been talking about it. Uh, People have been saying on Twitter, and I don't trust Twitter, but anyways. (laughs) I don't trust Twitter much, but anyways. People on Twitter have been saying the Hawks are the definition of mid. They're always just here and there and here and there, bouncing around 500. Despite like everyone saying like the Hawks are this, Hawks are that, the Hawks are a dangerous team. Because of that backcourt of DeJounte Murray and Trey Young, they always have that opportunity to light it up if they get that chance. So if the Celtics lift their foot off the gas a little too hard, just a little too hard, then that could cost them a game. I, th- I still think the Celtics have the definite talent edge, and I just think they have the overall edge. However, it just it, it doesn't it wouldn't surprise me if the Celtics lifted their foot off the gas and it cost them a game down the road. <sighs> Sticking with the <clears throat> Eastern Conference, the third of four Eastern Conference games, the Knicks defeated the Cleveland Cavaliers one hundred one to ninety seven. Uh, Jalen Brunson scored 27. Uh, Josh Hart had a double-double, led the New York Knicks to a win. Josh Hart crushed my heart seeing the Cavs, as bad as the Cavs played, uh, to try to come back and almost beat uh, a really great team in the New York Knicks. And then Josh Hart, on a sprained left ankle, mind you, he sprained his ankle. Um, I believe he got a steal and then came down the floor, hit a three on a sprained ankle which is crazy tough. It is so tough to do that. This game was, when when you look at it though, this game was very even. And uh, though the tandem, though the one thing I noticed, the tandem of uh, Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle for the Knicks led New York to out-rebound Cleveland, which is very impressive considering the front court of Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. And that's just something I noticed when watching that game is the Knicks played with a lot more passion. They were they were soaring for offensive rebounds. They were soaring for rebounds in general, diving after loose balls, all that stuff. <clears throat> they had much more heart in 
in that game than the Cavs did, and they absolutely deserve to win that game. I also feel like Darius Garland should have got a lot more involved in the fourth quarter. I don't think he attempted a shot in the fourth quarter, which to me is absurd. But Donovan, but you're, people are going to say, well, Donovan Mitchell was cooking. Donovan Mitchell cooked. He sure did. However, they're going to focus on him more when he's playing well. So why not pass it to your all-star guard, your other all-star guard, give him a chance? I, I, I just, they, they just need to give more of the team a chance and they can't just feed the ball over and over to Donovan Mitchell and the bench also needs to step up too in my opinion the bench for the Cavs got absolutely outplayed by the New York Knicks and one of the New York Knicks strengths is their bench with Josh Hart though who though Josh Hart may not play in game two he's listed as doubtful right now for the New York Knicks and Emmanuel quickly a six man of the year finalist. So the bench and the rebounding is going to be very key in this matchup between the Knicks and the Cavs and moving on to Saturday's final game in an absolute firestorm. Sacramento Kings picked up their first playoff win in almost 17 years, defeating the golden state warriors, the defending champs in game one, 126 to 123. Uh, Kyle's teammates De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk each scored 30. De'Aaron Fox had 38, Malik Monk 32 off the bench. Um, and the Kings dominated the paint. They had 60 points in the paint, and the Warriors had around 40-ish. They had their way with the Warriors in the paint, and that's kind of and that's mostly, um, you know, the Warriors front court. And what really strikes me about um, what really struck me about that. Uh, performance in points in the paint was that DeMontis Sabonis didn't even play that well. He shot, he didn't really shoot that well. He didn't score that many points. He he did play well overall, um, you know, despite the shooting efficiency. But if if you're if you're starting if there's if the opponent's starting center isn't playing all that well and you're still getting outscored in uh outscored in the paint mind you though keegan murray their power for the rookie power forward for the kings had like under five points or, or around or he definitely had single digits i can't remember what it was but he also the, so you have the star center for the kings doesn't play that well and the rookie power forward for the kings also not playing well or not putting up many shots and they still got outscored in the paint is crazy that just to me shows how good De'Aaron Fox is at driving to the basket because he is one of the best rim attackers in the league. He when he goes when he sees a lane to the rim, he goes and he kills it there. He'll kill you with a layup, he'll kill you with a dunk, whatever. He'll get to the rim and he'll make you pay for it if you're not ready. <clears throat> um and as for the Warriors, I definitely think that they're going to need to make major adjustments. First of all, as I said, they're going to need to be better in the paint. Additionally, they're going to need to better adjust to this hostile environment. This is a city, right? Sacramento, who many times their fans thought that that team would get sold. Now they've experienced playoff basketball for the first time in nearly two decades. They came out showed out in game one they're certainly going to do it again in game two so the warriors are going to have to um regroup and come back into uh game two and take a game in sacramento to even the series take it back to oakland 
or San Francisco. I uh, I think they're in San Francisco. I, I always consider them in Oakland. But they're going to need to go back. Uh, they're going to need to win this game in game two to go back to uh, to go back to Chase Center and have a chance at <clears throat> um, have a chance at the uh, at the series. Because if they drop game two, if they drop game two to Sacramento, their championship defense hopes are going to be very very slim. They're going to be very slim. And moving on to the first game of Sunday Slate, the seven seed of Los Angeles Lakers in the West, the two seed Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, Lakers defeated Grizzlies in a massive. Oh, I would would you call it an upset? Because many people consider the Lakers are going to win uh, this series, which I would say pump the brakes because I, I because I I was saying before that you know John Morant if he plays well they could win that game. Heck, even when Ja was fully playing in that game. The Lakers were hanging in there, and I'll say I watched that game. I, I well, I watched the second half of that game, and I'll say this: if the Lakers, if they all click like that, and by all I mean Rui Hachimura with the scoring, Austin Reeves with his incredible plays, Anthony Davis with his all-around great performance, LeBron doing LeBron things, Jared Vanderbilt defending well, if they all cap, if they all capitalize off of this success together. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers beat the Grizzlies in the first round. On top of that, John Morant also got hurt in the game, left the game in about the fourth quarter, and they're saying that his injury um, was pretty bad. He went down pretty hard uh, after a fall on his wrist. We'll see what happens there. But yeah, they the overall, the Los Angeles Lakers <clears throat> were incredible in that game. As I said, Anthony Davis had a double-double. He also had a career-high in blocks, or, or a career-high in playoff blocks with seven. Austin Reeves had inc had an incredible scoring run by himself, mind you. He finished with 23, I believe. Ruby Hachimura scored 29 off the bench, which is the most in Lakers playoff history. And LeBron scored only, like, 21 points. He... He really didn't have to do much, to be honest with you. <laughs> he really didn't have to do much, which is shocking because people thought, like, LeBron, obviously, we know LeBron. He, we look at him, he's like, he's going to be the X Factor. He's going to be the guy that will be the key to the Lakers' uh, playoff hopes. While, yes, he is an incredible key to the Lakers' playoff hopes, so is everybody else around him. If Austin Reeves can play well defensively and offensively as he did, that's going to be huge. If AD can A, stay healthy because AD must stay healthy. He left that game for a bit with, a, with an arm injury. Came back though. Um, he needs to remain healthy and A, or A needs to remain healthy and B also <clears throat> needs to play at a high level, which he did against the Lakers or the Grizzlies, excuse me. And if they get um, performances like off the bench, like Rui Hachimura gave them, this is going to be a very, very good series for the Lakers and a very, very tough one for the Grizzlies. And looking at the Grizzlies, that injury to John Morant could really hurt them, depending on the severity. Jaron Jackson Jr., who, who by the way, I think just won the Defensive Player of the Year, so shout out to Jaron Jackson. Uh, congratulations on that. He played well with 31 points and was the Grizzlies' main source of offense once Jaw went down. But the rest of the team is going to need to step up to uh, to give this to even this series. 
Desmond Bain and uh, the t- the tandem of Desmond Bain and everybody's favorite player, Dar- Dylan Brooks, they're going to need to improve. They were 11 of 31 shooting overall, and they were 5 of 9 for 13. They are really going to have to improve um, if Jaw is not going to be there. Because when Jaw wasn't there, they really, when Jaw wasn't there, not for injury, but for, you know, personal reasons. We all know what happened. But if Jaw's not there for a while, they're going to need to catch up. They're going to have to catch up or else they're going to they may drop another game and they're going to be in very deep waters going into Los Angeles. Also, that comment by Desmond Bain, I, I this, this is in my notes. But that comment by Desmond Bain, very weird. I don't pl- if you didn't know what he said, he basically was talking about Rui Hachimura and said it was his best. He basically said something like it was his best game of his career. You know, we'll see if he can do it again in game two. I find that a little shady, but to be honest with you, I don't look into it too much. And I, I can already see what people are saying. Like you want to talk about best performances and seeing if he can do if he can repeat that. What, well, what about your performance? Because me personally, I don't like to personally attack people, uh, like with their personal opinion stuff. However. Desmond, the thing is with Desmond Bain, he's talking about, you know, we'll see if Rui Hachimura can um, can maintain that level of performance. That's basically what he's saying. We need, to, I'm trying to see if Desmond Bain can improve from his game one performance because it wasn't that good. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but as I see it overall right now between the Lakers and the Grizzlies, if the Lakers continue to play good team basketball like this... I, I don't be surprised if the Lakers win the series. Don't be surprised because it definitely can't happen. Moving on and to the second game in the Sunday slate and the final one from the East in a shocking turn of events, the Heat, the eighth seed in Miami Heat, who've gone through turmoil all year, defeated the number one seed, the best team, the team with the best record in the NBA, the Milwaukee Bucks, one thirty to one seventeen. The biggest storyline in this game that I took away was the injuries in this game. There were two major injuries in this game, and they were really big. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo went down earlier in the first quarter and didn't return. They're saying he has a lower back contusion. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. And as for Tyler Hero, Tyler Hero went down in about the second quarter and didn't return in the second half after he broke his right hand. So those are two really big injuries to keep an eye on. But for the underdog heat, um, Jimmy Butler scored 35 points with 11 assists. He also had three steals. Um, off the bench, uh, Miami's ban- bench um, really, really outperformed um, Milwaukee's, mainly because of Kelvin Love and Caleb Martin. The <clears throat> the tandem were 6 of 10 from three. And that 60% clip is also the same exact clip that the entire Heat team shot from three. The Heat shot 60% from three, and they outscored Milwaukee in the paint as well. And that that last that ladder right there is so important to me because the one thing I always noticed when Giannis Antetokounmpo went down was that they were trying so hard to get up shots, to get up mid-range shots, to get up three-point shots. They rarely ever went to the paint. Bobby Portis Jr., he was getting there in the paint a little bit. Shout out to him because he's 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 a dog. And very, very deserving uh, finalist for sixth man of the year. But outside of him and probably Brooke Lopez, they really didn't go to the basket a lot. And that, to me, just shows the sheer amount 
of importance that Giannis Antetokounmpo is or shows to the Milwaukee Bucks. Without him, they can't click because everybody around him is meant to be able to uh, just shoot three-pointers. Well, they're not really meant to shoot three-pointers. They have more than that. But they complement his lack of shooting with shooting. Shocking, right? So when his paint presence isn't there, it doesn't allow the Bucks shooting to click because now they're trying to because now they're down and now their best players out and now they're just chucking up shots trying to trying to chip away at the lead to get back into the game. And they again they they, they like literally just could not get into the paint. Though I wouldn't I wouldn't advise people to say like oh this series is probably over. Could be. However, this this has happened so many times before with Milwaukee going down a game and then coming back to win the series. It happened in 2021 three different times, mind you. It happened in 2021 three different times. It happened against Brooklyn, against Katie, uh, Kyrie, and Harden. It happened against Atlanta with Trey Young. And it happened very, very infamously against Phoenix when they went down 2-0 at Phoenix and they ran off four straight. <clears throat> um, to win the championship, but while they while the the injury to Giannis Antetokounmpo is very 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 important, it is also it is uh, we should also keep in mind that Milwaukee knows how to play from behind, and I don't think the series is very much out of reach. I think they can come back to win it. It though it all depends if Giannis Antetokounmpo comes back because. <clears throat> while because while they did uh, eventually win those series that they were down in, Giannis was there for most of them. Now he's not. So I want to see what they're able to do in game two if Giannis is unavailable to play. Moving on to the second to last playoff game in a really fun game which I watched. Uh, the Los Angeles Clippers defeated the Phoenix Suns one fifteen to one ten. Kawhi had a dominant performance with thirty eight points. However, the MVP of this game, in my opinion, has got to be Russell Westbrook. And you're probably listening to me right now like, what is this guy talking about? He shot 3 of 19. And yeah, he shot 3 of 19. Not good. But if what it's what he didn't do shooting that he did everything else. He had 11 rebounds, including 5 offensive rebounds. Which, by the way, 5 offensive rebounds for a point guard, to, at least to me, is pretty impressive. He had 8 assists, 2 steals. And also three blocks. And one of those blocks was the game-winning block on Devin Booker that gave the Clips the win. He also had two very big free throws at the end uh, to basically give the Clippers the win. Or if he didn't, or if he didn't, like, you know, give them the win, he, he put them in a position to, you know, up the lead, all that stuff. But, yeah, that, that was a very, very impressive performance by Russell Westbrook. At that point, you know, he could have gotten benched for the rest of the game. He was shooting so bad, but they kept him in there. And he just continued to do just not, not just like, you know, everybody knows, like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to even this out. Basically, everybody knows how good of a scorer Russell Westbrook once was. Yes. And while three of 19 shooting performances is, is, I mean, it's happened before Russ has had bad shooting performances, but 
people are that people are discrediting him, saying like you know this it's it's not as crazy think as you think it is. You look at everything in total, right? Yes, three of nineteen shooting, but he also had eleven rebounds, five offensive rebounds. He had eight assists. He had two steals. He had three blocks and tons, tons and tons and tons of key plays. He also played very well against defensively against uh, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and KD. He he was a surefire MVP of this game despite his poor offensive performance. This is the type man. Uh, this is the type of Russell Westbrook I love to see. This is the type of Russell Westbrook I love to see. You just, just incredible. Shout out to Russell Westbrook. <clears throat> uh, KD. Uh, speaking of the Suns, moving on to them. KD did have a really good performance in his Suns playoff debut. He had a near triple double. Um, <clears throat> uh, Booker added uh, twenty six points. Troy Craig had twenty two. Uh, but the the one thing that I took away from this game was that the Los Angeles bench the Los Angeles bench completely and I mean completely dismantled uh Phoenix's bench. LA had 34 bench points in that game. Phoenix had 10. And that and that that's going to be super important because we know how good Los Angeles bench is. You got Mason Plumley, Bones Highland, Eric Gordon, though Eric Gordon may be a starter, but I'm not sure. But the biggest piece for them off the bench, Norman Powell. Those guys are all going to be very big in this series for the Los Angeles Clippers if they want to upset a perennial favorite for the NBA title in the Phoenix Suns. <clears throat> though I do want to say one thing that uh, – was irking me a little bit in the fourth quarter was that Norman Powell was get not getting a lot or it, I don't think it was the fourth quarter it's probably the whole second half but Norman Powell was not getting a lot of shots and I felt like he should have gotten more shots um he's Norman Powell's very underrated scorer and he can he can very much make a difference with it and if they get him more involved and they continue this great bench play again and if Phoenix continue to play bad on the bench this series could look really good for the Clippers. And it could mean that, again, the perennial favorite of the West, the Phoenix Suns, with the huge the huge stars of Chris Paul and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, DeAndre Ayton, could get bounced by a Clippers team who, right now, who in this first round, won't have Paul George. They didn't play with Paul George in Game 1, and they won't have him for the rest of the series. Now... Moving on to the final game of the NBA playoffs, we have the Denver Nuggets dismantling the Minnesota Timberwolves 109 to 80. Michael Porter Jr. had uh, a double double in that game. Jamal Murray played well, though he did, and he 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 kind of struggled in the first three quarters. He only had about 14 points, but he scored 10. In the fourth quarter, when the game was kind of out of reach, but still, 24 points, eight rebounds, eight assists for Jamal Murray, still impressive. Overall, the Nuggets just shot better. Obviously, the 109 to 80 score speaks to that, and <clears throat> they dominated the paint, both in rebounds and both in points in paint. And I think it's going to, be, and I think that's going to be very interesting to see this. Um, one thing that caught my eye. Uh, with the <clears throat> one thing that um, caught my attention, I keep saying caught my eye. I want to mix it up a little bit. Uh, but one thing that did catch my attention was um, 
the Nuggets' performance was at six players. Six players, all five starters, and Bruce Brown off the bench all scored 13 or more points. And seeing the absolute... Seeing the absolute destruction of the paint for the Minnesota Timberwolves, Carl Finney Towns and Rudy Gobert are going to need to improve. They both did not play well in game one. And if they have any, if they're going to have any chance of winning this series, especially against an MVP candidate in Nikola, in, in Nikola Jokic, they're going to need to up their play. Because if they don't up their play defensively and offensively in the paint, they're going to get, they could get swept. They could get swept. And that rounds out the NBA playoffs. Moving on uh, from the NBA playoffs to a couple of really big news out of the NFL. First off, Buda Baker uh, requested a trade from the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, he's a B- Baker is a five-time Pro Bowler, two-time All-Pro. Though I do want to mention one of those All-Pros was for special teams. The other one was for when he was a safety. Still, two all two All-Pros is very impressive. Um, Buda Baker has been one of the best, and easily he's been the Arizona Cardinals' best defensive leader since he got drafted out of Washington in 2017. Right now, his contract situation, uh, right now Buda Baker's owed $13.1 million this coming season, and in 2024 he's owed $14.2 million. And right now, because the reason this is coming about is because there's a ongoing dispute between Baker and the Cardinals due to their opposite goals. Baker wants two things. He wants a a contract a contract security, which all NFL players want, not surprising, and B he wants to win. And if you saw what happened with the Arizona Cardinals last season, we kind of know that they're not in the position to win. They're just not. And this this is obviously going to create strife between uh, the Cardinals and Buda Baker. If you guys remember uh, last season, the Arizona Cardinals had an in-season hard knocks on HBO. And after one of their losses, Buda Baker was incredibly visibly and um, and vocally upset about the team's performance. And this kind of, and is this really surprising to look at? No. Uh, when you look at this now, it's not really surprising to look at because that obviously that shows everyone like, you know, he cares about winning. Like, obviously, nobody likes to lose, but he really does not like to lose. He just wants to win. But right now, Arizona is 100 percent not in a position to <clears throat> to win. And they're just not in a good position at all. DeAndre Hopkins might be traded to free up cap space, which would really, really hurt them because we know how good DeAndre Hopkins is. But not just that. If you guys remember, the NFLPA had that survey where they examined um, organizations' performance or whatever, and the Cardinals came in second to last. There's been allegations of cheating. There's been allegations of discrimination, harassment. It's just not been a good offseason for the Cardinals, and the trade request from Buda Baker just made it worse. Uh, and with that being said about Buda Baker, who would I who would I see for him to be a um, to be a good suitor? Well, number one, I think the Chiefs would definitely be suited for him, and I know people aren't gonna like that, but he could be very important. Because Buda Baker is a very versatile defender. He's a great defensive back. And Kansas City has always had a thin defensive back room. And right now, their safeties are very thin. They got Justin Reed, Deion Bush, 
but bringing in Buda Baker um, could really, really help them out. And though I say that the Chiefs would really benefit from getting Buda Baker, I don't think it'll happen. Because while the Chiefs have assets to get Buda Baker, they don't have the financial ability to maintain him. Because as I said, Buda Baker also wants financial and contract security with the ability to play for a winning team or a winning franchise. While Kansas City is a winning franchise, um, we know their cap situation right now. They didn't even offer Tyron Matthew a safety, and they need safeties. They didn't even offer Matthew a contract. They released Frank Clark. Their money situation is becoming very dire, especially you know with Patrick Mahomes' big contract. Um, so I, while I think Bruda Baker will be a great fit for the Chiefs, in, in the end, I, I don't really think that he's go. I don't really think he's going there. Two teams that I think he really could go to that a have assets and b also <clears throat> um ha- also have a continued winning culture are the New York Giants and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both teams are very thin um, with their defensive back room. They have cap space. And they also have assets to trade that can give Buda Baker a contract that he can like. Or he will or he will like. He can like is kind of a weird statement. But you guys get the point. I originally had Philadelphia on this list. Uh, but I took them off. Because if you guys saw the news today about Philadelphia, you would know that Jalen Hurts just signed a massive five-year, $225 million extension with the Philadelphia Eagles. This contract extension makes it the highest paid player in NFL history at $51 million a year. And the coming back to Buda Baker, because they gave him that much money, like, you know, if they gave Hurts that much money, do you, and while Philadelphia has assets, they have the number 10 pick, they have the 30th pick, do you really think they could give that to, um, do you really think that, well, yes, they can give that to, um, Arizona if they so wanted to although I think the 10th pick for a safety is a bit much maybe the 30th pick but whatever will they have enough financial will they have cap space to eventually sign Buda Baker to an extension that's just, that's that's what really swayed me away from considering Philadelphia a top suitor <coughs> um, of Buda Baker so right now I have the Giants and the Jaguars as like um, two reasonable ones, and then the Chiefs has a long shot. And if none of those happen, and uh, then there's the long, long shot, the long, long, long shot in Philadelphia. And if not, he's probably going to remain in Arizona and could get traded the next season. Who knows? <clears throat> and moving back to basketball, there was something. Uh, there was something that went on this past weekend that really, really intrigued me. It's the issue of Zion Williamson. Uh, what people saw of the Oklahoma City Thunder, they defeated the New Orleans Pelicans from, from the play-in tournament, and Zion Williamson was not there. And everybody posted on social media, oh, here's Zion Williamson warming up pregame. And you, you think, oh, he's okay, but he doesn't play. And it's like, oh, what is he doing? He's just letting his team down. But if, if you all, if everybody really takes a step back, okay, really takes a step back, understand this. Uh, wh- there's a couple of things we need to understand. Number one, we know his talent. That, that's, that is 
out, that is out of the question. We understand Zion Williamson is a generational talent. Number two, he hasn't played in 40%, at least 40% of his possible games, which is nuts. And number three, he has a well-publicized physical injury history. But what about the mental aspect? It's like we nobody – this is something that people – question a lot with will this guy come back will that guy come back what a, yada, yada, yada. we need to understand that while people can improve can they could they'll never really remain a hundred percent that's the thing and the, that's here is the thing you i keep saying here's the thing but you can never truly remain a hundred percent physically and you definitely probably can't remain a hundred percent mentally there's always going to be something going on behind the behind the screen, behind the curtain that you don't know what happened. So my question is, what is what is Zion's mental health like? You know, and that may be a weird question to ask, but what is his mental health at? Because, you know, for a guy like this who had uber amounts of hype and a lot and has a lot of talent to back it up, coming into the NBA and he suffered injury after injury, setback after setback, how much is this playing on his mental health? Because because I'm a firm believer that mental health issues are just as debilitating as physical health issues. Well, except for death, but mental health, but mental health can, issues can lead to death in some cases. But you know, this conversation is getting a little morbid. But I think you guys get the point. Mental health issues are just as important as physical health issues, if not more important. So what? So I'm under, so I'm trying to figure out what is going on with Zion Williamson that we don't really understand. Because there's reports going around right now that doctors have been clearing him, but medical people within his circle and um, I heard it, I heard his stepdad being thrown around in this. They don't want him to play at 99%. They want him to go in at 100%. And that's where the um, excuse me, that's where the um, nobody can remain 100% in any sports. That's that's where like we can't. Um, I'm having a I'm having a friend call me. He's probably asking about my podcast right now. Uh, anyways, that's the thing. Like nobody can truly remain a hundred percent physically or mentally in any sport. So I think that it just it just kind of comes down to Zion Williamson's choice. It, he he should be able to take in the information from doctors. And then just kind of make a consistent decision on, okay, what do I want to do? Do I, want to, do I feel like I want to go out there and play for my team? Or do I want to sit this one out because this could really affect me in the future? So that's kind of how I see it. I think people hype, like, they just fall on the guy too much. Like, yeah, he has had a really bad injury history, and it really has prevented him from sh truly showcasing his talent, if he hasn't already done that, by the way. Me, personally, I feel like he's truly showcased his talent 100%. But anyways, <clears throat> while he's, while, like, yes, the physical injury history is there, and that can be healed, what's it like, in, what's it like up in his head, you know? What's it like in there? Um, it, does he feel like he's mentally ready because if he, if he feels like he's not mentally ready because he's having like oh i don't know if like you know this could affect my future i just don't know if i'm ready you know i feel like you have racing thoughts and racing thoughts are a are, they are a pain they are really bad so i would say to everybody 
so I would say I'm very neutral on this. I think that Zion Williamson should go out there and play because, again, like, yes, his mental health is important. His health is important. Overall health, it's very important. However, he's still on a football or he's still on a basketball team. Well, he could be on a football team, but anyways, he, he's still on a basketball team. He's on a professional team with teammates that count on him. And that I feel like he should take into aspect too. He's like, I got people that are counting on me. This is an important game. If we if we lose, we go home. I gotta be there for my guys. Or it's I really wanna be there for my guys, but I just don't know if I'm ready. Like like up here in my head. I don't know if I'm I feel ready in my body, but like up here I don't know. Like what if I what if something happens to me and it jeopardizes my whole career? You'd be surprised to uh, you'd be surprised to learn how much athletes do get worried often about injuries. Um, me per me when I played football and take my take my opinion on this with a grain of salt because comparing me to Zion Williamson is comparing in size an ant to a bear. Okay, but I once once I started to get playing time in football. I wondered myself, like, uh, like what if, what if I get hurt? And I did get hurt. It did happen. It can happen at any time. And it could be, you know, minor or it could be really, really, really bad. So that that's just my stance on it. I feel like Zion should just rely on himself, you know, taking the information from doctors, medical personnel, then make his own decision. Do I feel like he has, like, an obligation to be there for his teammates? As a professional basketball player, yeah, he kind of does. But, you know, as a human, <clears throat> as a human, while you have to, you know, be there for others, you also have to be there for yourself. Because if you're not there for yourself, then you're just going to end up a shell of yourself or a shell of who you could be. That's how I see it. Uh, some And one of the biggest storylines that have come out out of baseball uh, this past season, or this this beginning season, I don't know why I said that this past season. Oh man! But this beginning, the beginning of the season, the Tampa Bay Rays started thirteen and zero. They ended up losing that streak when they went to Toronto in it, and they lost six to three. They lost a second consecutive game, and then then the one the next game. They are now fourteen and two currently. So my so the question is, excuse me. Can they keep the pace? I feel like I don't know if they could keep that pace that they were at, like winning 13 consecutive games to start the season, because they did play some really bad teams, to be honest with you. They played Detroit, I believe, and Boston, and I think they played Oakland, Like they and I think they played the, the Nationals. They played some really, really bad teams. Let's just be real. They played bad teams, and... <clears throat> They and the thing is, is the streak was going to come to an end at some point, and against a team like the Toronto Blue Jays, most certainly, they're ha Toronto right now has some of the best hitters in the in baseball, and Matt Chapman and uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, they've got guys, they've got guys. But I'm not saying like, oh, could they have gone one six two and oh, no, no way in hell. But could they have? But could they, can they keep the pace? I question this very much, and I wondered, like, okay, first off, the injury to Jeffrey Springs is very big for them. Jeffrey Springs balled out for them in, the in his first couple starts. 
uh, a sub one ERA. He was he was hurling it, and then he went down off uh, with an injury, which is going to cost him at least two months, if not more. Though with the way that the Tampa Bay Rays are playing right now, I don't doubt uh, that they could keep the pace that they're at right now. They've got a great, great, solid lineup with guys like Brandon Lau and Josh Lowe and Wander Franco, the superstar, and Harold Ramirez at DH. They also have a really good uh, pitching staff, despite the lack of big names on their squad. They got Shane McClanahan, who was a Cy Young contender last year. He's playing well right now. Drew Rasmussen's been playing well. Zach Eflin, their um, their free agent signing, has been doing solid. And their top pitching prospect, Taj Bradley, got called up recently. Not only that, they also have a solid bullpen. They have a solid bullpen trio of Pete Fairbanks, Adam or Jason Adam, and Garrett Clavenger. And like obviously, considering that they lost two straight in Toronto, though they did get a win back, they're now fourteen and two. Could they keep the pace? I think they can keep it at a pace that wins them 100 games, if a little less than that. But I don't think that it could keep them a pace where they could get to, like, you know, 110 wins. Because you have to be an incredibly, incredibly talented team to get 110-plus wins. You have to be, like, last year's Los Angeles Dodgers. Like, last year's Los Angeles Dodgers was a super team. And right, and with Tampa Bay, they're just you know they're not just, they're just not that. They're a great team. They're not a super team, though. I do think that they can't keep at a hundred plus win pace, and I think they're going to be good as far as the se- as the season um, as the season progresses. A lot of big news came out of the combat sports. The biggest one that came out was a fight. A boxing match was made official on August. Uh, what day was it? I'm trying to find it. Trying to find it. Uh, can't find it. Uh, I don't have the date on here. That sucks. Well, I know it's sometime in August, but Jake Paul, the YouTube sensation, is set to fight former UFC welterweight or former UFC fighter, whatever you want to say, former UFC fighter Nate Diaz uh, in a 185 bout uh, in Dallas in August, early August, something like that. And this has been a long time coming in all seriousness because um, there was an incident, and I don't remember which boxing match it was it was either against tommy fury oh this is this is jake paul by the way it was either the paul versus tommy fury match or it was the jake paul versus anderson silva match where um jake paul's team and nate diaz's team got into it there was a scuffle they've been talking trash back and forth it's been a lot of speculation that this fight could happen and now it is um for for jake paul this is a really good chance to prove himself uh but I, 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 I'm just not sure because the, the one thing that's always been falling around Jake Paul is that, oh, he just can't fight real boxers. You know, he fought, he, you know, the guys he's beaten, he beat Nate Robinson, who's a basketball player, we know. He beat Ben Askren, who, by the way, Ben Askren is one of the worst strikers in MMA history. So it was no question he was going to win that fight. He beat Tyron Woodley, which, you know, better win there. He beat Anderson Silva, really good win there. And then he finally fights a boxer and Tommy Fury, and he loses. While he lost by split decision, still, it still, you go, still, you feel like, you know, you're going back to, or you're go, at least going to fighting boxers, and now he's going to fight another MMA guy. 
though the one thing I keep in my mind when I think about this is that this is Nate Diaz. This is not just some MMA guy. This is Nate Diaz. This is the guy who handed Conor McGregor his first loss. This this is a guy who's a straight up fighter, right? And I just I think that honestly this is probably the best matchup that Jake Paul could have had so far against a former MMA fighter. Um, because this is a guy that it doesn't matter if it's MMA, boxing, or jiu-jitsu, whatever. Nate Diaz is going to fight. He's going to fight. And when you have a guy like Nate Diaz who's feeling disrespected because he feels like, oh, this little pretty boy from YouTube comes out of nowhere, he'd probably be thinking something a whole lot different than that. Uh, a lot more, uh, a lot uh, with a lot more explicitives because it's Nate Diaz. But anyways, it's just... <clears throat> It's very interesting because, you know, this is this will be the fourth former MMA fighter that uh, Jake Paul will have fought. The fourth MMA fighter. And he's fought one boxer. He's lost to him. That's just the thing that doesn't really sit with me. Is that this dude is this dude's law or this dude's lost to a boxer in his first match against a boxer, but is beaten four or could beat four MMA right now has beaten three MMA guys could beat four and a basketball player you know I just I, I would just cause I mean you know I, I would take the route of just normal boxers to fight lesser talent and work your way up everybody in boxing does it and yeah it leads to some very weird inflated um, undefeated records all that stuff but it's but but getting those fights against you know you know, lesser talent, but really good talent in general is important because it grows you. And I don't want to say, and I, th people are going to say Jake Paul's scared. I don't even think that's it. I think Jake Paul just wants to make money because despite, <laughs> despite what, despite, you know, people saying, oh, go fight a real boxer. The only people, the only reason people say go fight a real boxer is because they want to see Jake Paul lose. Okay, because not a lot of people like Jake Paul. I'm indifferent to him. I don't really care about him. I, I think he's he's whatever. But that's the thing is people want to see Jake Paul lose. And when you have him fighting MMA guys who, yeah, they trained in boxing, but they trained in other things more often than boxing. Jake Paul's been consistently training in boxing. So people are like, oh, he has an advantage. Why doesn't he fight a real boxer? The thing is, it's like if he continues to make these matches against these big name guys, um, whether they're from boxing or not, he's going to make money. That's probably his only goal is to make a ton of money, you know? So, so while people are going to gripe about it, I'm excited for it, honestly, because I love me some Nate Diaz. I really do. And, you know, this is, this is it, it, just from a sports perspective. It's very interesting because now you have because you know Jake Paul's last fight he loses to Tommy Fury now we can have a chance to rebound uh, and as for <clears throat> as for Nate Diaz this is a chance for him to prove himself outside the UFC and it's also um, <clears throat> it's also a way for him to cha to chase his uh, or a chance for like his own ambitions. Because he feel because you know he's all got all this he's got all this stuff, 
like you know he has his own um promotion or I don't, I don't know if it's a promotion but i know it's a team uh real fight um if you remember his call out of jorge masvidal he's like there's no there's no real gangsters in this game anymore we know what we know what nate diaz thinks he wants to fight and he sees this like i said he sees this little dude from youtube he's like i don't know if he should be here to fight so maybe he Nate Diaz just takes him out of a fight game. Who knows? But overall, I'm excited for it. I think it'll be very entertaining because Nate Diaz is, again, very entertaining. The only thing I'm kind of upset about is that because Nate Diaz will be wearing gloves, he's not going to get the ability to flip off Jake Paul, which I, w which I think people would love. But And I would love it because Nate Diaz flipping off people is hilarious. He's wants to flip off the crowd while... He once flipped off the crowd while holding a guy in a triangle choke, for God's sake. He's the best. But, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And I'm into it. Uh, the other big news that came, out of, um, that came out of combat sports was the former middleweight champ, Alex Poatan Pereira. Um, he announced his intentions to move up to light heavyweight after his um, devastating knockout loss to Israel Adesanya. In my opinion, smart, because his normal weight is around 210 to 220. It, sometimes his weight is up there at like 230, and when he's cutting down to middleweight, he's having to cut 50 pounds, up to 50 pounds. That's that's not healthy, okay? I, I know there's been so many debates about people saying like, oh, weight cutting in MMA or UFC isn't healthy. It's to be honest with you, it's not really healthy. It's it's really bad. We saw what happened with Hamza Shemaev. Hamza Shemaev missed weight badly because if he continued to cut weight the way he did, he probably would have died. But they're just like, oh, he's a bum who can't make weight. Well, I would suggest anybody that says like, oh, this bum can't make weight, go. I would tell them to go make weight themselves. I'm just saying, cause it's. Every MMA fighter and UFC fighter has always talked about, like, the pain it is to go through cutting weight. And I believe them. It's really, really bad to have to to have to have consume nothing but water and get yourself all the way down to, like, you know, in Pareda's case, from 210, 220 to 185. That's just not sustainable. And I think, honestly, he's better suited for light heavyweight. Um, and moving, moving up the weight class would allow him to a like you know just be healthier because he doesn't have to cut as much weight as he would if he remained at middleweight. And uh, I think it would also be important, really be really be good for the light heavyweight division. Um, though I would say this: people have been saying like you know with Hamza Shimaev, Hamza Shimaev <clears throat> right now is projected to go up to middleweight. And people saying, like, oh, he should fight a guy like Paulo Costa. Or he should fight a guy like Robert Whitaker or one of those guys. Here's the thing. I believe that, you know, a guy going from one weight class to the next should not fight a top, top contender. That's personally why I feel like Hamza Chimaya versus Paulo Costa is the best matchup to make. But I guarantee you it's not going to happen because, you know, MMA or UFC fighters can sometimes be jerks and just, you know, not cooperate and all that. But I feel like it's the same case with Alex Pereira. 
while I would love to see him go up against a guy like Magomed Ankalaev or Jan Blahovic or Alexander Rakic when Rakic returns from ACL injury, I think he should try and prove himself against like somebody in the 10 to 6 or a little bit lower than uh a little bit lower than 10 like 11 or 12 somebody in that range to prove that he can hang there which i believe he can which is why i would love to see him face one of those three guys i just mentioned <clears throat> um but i would not i would not i would not want the fight right i would not want to make the fight between jamal hill and alex Pereira. right now the fight at light heavyweight to make is jamal hill versus yuri prohaska that is 100% the fight right now in MMA. Yuri Prohaska won the belt um, and never defended it because of an injury. Then Jamal Hill won the belt. And after that fight, you know, Yuri, Yuri Prohaska had that hilarious video of him in the snow yelling, I'm coming. And then Jamal Hill had the funny response of, you know, him standing in the snow. He's like, I'm here, bro. Which is, if you haven't seen it, it's so funny. Jamal Hill, Jamal Hill is so funny. But anyways, and then later on at, I believe it was UFC 285, I believe, um, the Jones vs. Gone pay-per-view, uh, Jamal Hill and Yuri Prohaska, they did a little face-off. That, with everything, uh, with everything right now, Jamal Hill being the champion that, you know, <clears throat> that got the benefit of two opportunities, you know, um, <clears throat> he... Uh, he saw Yuri Prohaska get stripped to the title, and then Ankalaev and Blahovic tied, or drawed, and he, eventually he beat Glover Teixeira to win the title. And Yuri, he's looking to get the title back that he never lost. And they've been, and those two have been building this fight. That fight between Yuri and Jamal is the fight to make, not Alex Pereira. If Alex Pereira can prove himself to beat a top tier light heavyweight, then make that fight between Jamal Hill or Yuri Prohaska, because. This is where it gets interesting. Both Jamal Hill and Yuri Prohaska have beaten Alex Pereira's mentor, Glover Teixeira, for the light heavyweight belt. So, you know, Alex Pereira, he beats a light heavyweight, a top light heavyweight guy. Then, you know, he can call out uh, Hill or Prohaska, whomever, and say, hey, you beat my mentor. Now I'm going to beat you. Oh, you know, uh, he'd probably say, probably, uh, if he... You know, if he could speak English, which, you know, it's fine if he doesn't speak English, you know, it's fine, completely fine. But he probably include a lot more insulting things than that. But that's just the rundown of it. Hill and Prohaska is the fight right now, light heavyweight. And, you know, when Prohaska gets healthy eventually, and then, <clears throat> you know, whoever wins that fight, um, that whoever wins that fight, Jamal Hill or Jerry Prohaska, they're going to fight Alex Pereira. But right now, Hill Prohaska is the fight at lay heavyweight. And to round out combat sports, just to uh, run down quickly some UFC fight night highlights, Pedro Munoz picked up a win over Chris Gutierrez. Uh, Ion Kutilaba picked up a knockout win over Tanner Bozer. Uh, Edson Barbosa added another knockout highlight uh, against Billy Quarantillo. And in the main event, <clears throat> Max Holloway defeated Arnold Allen by unanimous decision. And that rounds out combat sports. And moving on to the final moving on to the final story before um, I get into our NHL playoff outlook. 
This story I found very interesting over the week. If you didn't catch it, Memphis commit Mikey Williams was arrested in San Diego. And right now it's likely he's going to be charged with assault with a firearm. And this story disappointed me. It disappointed me just as much as it did with the John Morant fiasco. And this, this brought up to me two questions. Number one, where is he getting this weapon from? That's a personal question, but I'm just curious. Where is he getting it from? And, excuse me. Number two, <clears throat> why make these decisions? What do you have to prove? What what do you, like that that la, the latter question really 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 whenever situations like this happen they really get to me because when that happens when stuff like this happens what do you have to prove? What do you have to prove? What are you trying to prove? Why do this? Why make these decisions? I just don't get it. It happened with John Morant and it's like why do you want to be something that you're not? Why does this? Why do you want to be something that you don't have to be? Because John Moran had a. Ch this is a couple things I said when that whole situation with John Moran went down. Number one, he has a daughter. He has a young daughter. Number two, he's making over two hundred million through his contract. You're making a ton of money with more money to come through endorsements and a shoe deal, and you also have a daughter that looks up to you. Why would you make these decisions to associate yourself with firearms? And I get it, Second Amendment, you know, they get, they have a they have a uh, right to carry and all that. But I but this different between this is different between John Morant and Mikey Williams. John Morant was fortunate enough, right? He was fortunate enough for nobody to be hurt, or or the chance for not anyone to be hurt. Because nobody in that area, when that whole, when he had that gun, was hurt, and he never attempted at pulling it, whatever. Michael Williams, if this whole story is true, shot at somebody. He attempted to shoot at people. He actually made that choice to, to want to harm somebody with a deadly weapon. That's the difference. It's one thing to carry a weapon. It's another thing to use it because you're mad at somebody for some reason. It's just, like, things like this just don't make sense to me. They just don't. There's nothing that you have to prove with wanting to be gangster or hood or whatever you want to be or whatever Shannon Sharp wants to spout on first take. Or not not first take. Um, fo or on, on Fox. The, like, uh, why did I think he was on first take? This makes me so mad. It's just, like, why do you want to... Why do you want to spout these things? Why do you want to... Why do you want to do these things? What is it? What do you gain from it? You gain nothing. The only thing that Mikey Williams could gain from <clears throat> this is jail time, possible jail time. And you know what he loses? His whole career, everything. He, I remember when this kid was a freshman lighting it up and people were posting his highlights everywhere like he's next up. And now he might be next up in the county jail. Like he might, he might be next up in the county jail now. Because of his own stupid decisions. I hope that, you know, whatever happens with this situation, he learns from it and he wants to become a better man. Not just from not just from a basketball perspective, just from a just from a human perspective. I just hope the kid improves. Because this is not a when you're an athlete, this is not a lifestyle you want to live. 
There are certain when you're when you change when you become successful in sports or whatever. There's there might be certain people that you might have to cut off from your life because they're going to be um, around people or they're going to be doing things that don't align with what you want to succeed. And this and what happened with Mikey Williams just adds on to that. So in the end, I just hope he improves. That's all. And to round it out, I'm going to do a very, very long section on the NHL playoff outlook. I understand some of you may not be big into hockey. Me personally, I'm not. I'm bigger into the Boston Bruins because the Bruins are my favorite team after all. But um, I do want to give a shout out to ESPN's Ryan S. Clark and Kristen Shilton for um, help for giving me some insight into into the NHL playoffs. I suggest you go look up their um their article read it for yourself if you wanted to get into playoff hockey because if you didn't know playoff hockey is fun as hell it is so so fun and so entertaining and to round it out to round this episode out i'm gonna go team by team and basically gonna round out like you know you know um their strengths their weaknesses and i'm also going to make my picks at the very end for um, the first round of the NHL playoffs. Starting off, the Boston Bruins. They are the obvious team to beat. They, you know, record-setting performance, um, President Trophy winner, most wins in NHL history, most points in NHL history as a team. They're backed up very well. They got great coaching. They have amazing goaltending, and they got depth for days. David Pasternak has been playing like an MVP, and the great tandem in the net of Linus Olmark and Olmark's going to be there for the majority of the playoff run. But if he were to get hurt, they got a pretty good backup in Jeremy Swayman, too. So everything points to the Bruins being the de facto favorites of the Stanley Cup. However, something that could run into their path to the Cup is their power play, which is 11th best in the league. If you, don't, if you guys don't know what that is, uh, power play is basically when the other team gets a penalty... So the team, so the team, so let's say the Bruins are playing the Maple Leafs. The Maple Leafs, one of the Maple Leafs players gets a penalty. He gets sent to the box. Now the Bruins have a five to four man advantage. They have a chance to score a goal. And I just explained to you guys, like <laughs> you guys are babies. Uh, if if you guys know what a power play is, I apologize. I'm just not familiar with hockey for myself, so I have to spout this to you guys so I retain it myself. And also, well, if you guys don't really know hockey, then I'm. You know, I'm going to relay this information to you. But, yeah, that's a power play. And although the Bruins were incredible this year, they were only 11th best in power play. And power plays are very, very important in in the playoffs. If the Bruins can't consistently capitalize on their power plays, then it's going to be a really, really tough playoff for them. And, well, I, w- I would say that the Bruins will definitely get far. However... I don't know if if they play bad or if they play pretty poorly with the power play, then I don't know if they could get to the Stanley Cup or win the Stanley Cup. Moving on to the Bruins' arch rivals, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I hate the Maple Leafs, respectfully. If you're a Maple Leafs fan, I love you because I'm taught to love everybody as a Christian, but I don't like the Maple Leafs. Anyways, the Maple Leafs right now, they're desperate. They feel like this is their time. They have a surefire, fantastic goaltender in Ilya Samsonov. They have a dominant four-punch combo of Mitch Marner, 
Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and John Tavares. They got really good defensemen like Morgan Riley, Mark Giordano, Timothy Lejeune, or, oh god, I forgot how to pronounce his name. I knew this would happen. And Justin Holt. There, there's probably going to be some names I forget how to pronounce. I apologize. Um, while everything, you know, is really looking up for the Leafs, like they do, this really does feel like their time to make a cup run. What's really going to bite them is if Ilya Samsonov gets hurt, if their star goalie gets hurt, then they're going to be left with a very, very big void in the net because their backup goalie right now, Matt Murray, he's dealing with injuries. And <clears throat> and their other goalie, Joseph Wall, he doesn't have barely any playoff experience. So while the Maple Leafs, you know, they got everything in place and they're desperate to try and prove that they can get out of the first round and they can and they can move far. They at this point they don't even at this point, you know, considering the Maple Leafs history and how passionate that fan base is, they don't care about if they just get past the first round. They want a Stanley Cup. Everybody wants a Stanley Cup, but I wouldn't be so quick to focus on that because the Maple Leafs consistently have underperformed in the playoffs. I think the first step is to win the first round against the defending or the defending Eastern Conference champs, Tampa Bay Lightning. That's the number one thing is to win that. And then you worry about, you know, whoever you got to face next, you know, probably Boston, but po possibly Florida. You never know. NHL playoffs could go either way. <clears throat> Speaking of the Tampa Bay Lightning, they're looking to make another run to the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, I believe, they won the stand. Or I don't know if they – no, they, they won in 2020. In the 2020 and 2021 uh, playoffs, they both – they won the Stanley Cup both times and nearly won it again, but they fell short to the Colorado Avalanche last season. They're looking to make another run at the postseason. Um, they got a great tandem – um, Scoring-wise, of Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point, along with the savvy vet Steven Samkos. I think Samkos is still there, but I'm not sure. And they also have a great goalie in Andre Vasilevsky, who always seems to perform well when the playoffs roll around. However, their recent slump in uh, their final 12 games, they lost 8 of their last 12 games. They allowed around 3 goals a game, Vasilevsky did. That's That could come to hurt that If they come into the... Um, if they come into the playoffs slumping like they did in the at the end of the regular season, it might be a really really long uh, post. It, it might be really dire for them against the Maple Leafs. Their defense hasn't been up to par as it has been in regular seasons, so they're going to need to maximize their efforts. Which their head coach John Cooper, who's won two Stanley Cups before with the Lightning, they definitely can do. John Cooper knows how to get the best out of his players and his coaching is going to be very important for the Lightning to attempt to make another run in the Stanley Cup. And finally, rounding out with the Boston Bruins opponent in the first round, the Florida Panthers sort of steaming into the postseason. Um, <clears throat> right now, Matthew Tkachuk uh, playing like an MVP level player. Uh, Brandon Montour has been super underrated for them. And Alex Leon was playing well in the place of Sergei Bobrovsky. He actually got the start tonight. As I'm saying this right now, the Panthers and Bruins are playing. I don't know the score. I don't want to get distracted by checking it. But right now, uh, I did get a notification before I started recording that Alex Leon was making the start over Sergei Bobrovsky, which makes sense because Lyon was playing extremely well to this point. But what really is going to be the difference for um, the Florida Panthers in this matchup against the best team, probably the best team ever, 
in the NHL, a regular season NHL, is um, can their can they um, <clears throat> can their hot streak at the end of the season play well into the playoffs? Because when they're down after the first period, they've only won four games when they're down after the first period. So if they get down, so if they got down early to the Bruins, it, it would be tough for them to come back. And what's really important is can their hot streak at the end of the season, where they won a bunch of games down the stretch and went on a good run, can that alleviate the pressure of playing from behind and possibly lead to a monumental upset? Moving on in the East from the Atlantic Division to the Metropolitan Division, we have the Carolina Hurricanes. They're aiming to make their mark. Obviously, we know about Sebastian Ajo and Martin Nikos. Um, they've both been incredibly great. Uh, they have a great defense. They're second in goals per scored per game, and they're second. And they have the second-ranked penalty kill in the NHL. Medicine alarm. My apologies. Anyways, if you guys don't know what the penalty kill is, basically, as I mentioned before, power play is the advantage that a team has over another team. You know, the Bruins, they have five against the Maple Leafs, four. <clears throat> if the Bruins score, they got the power play. And so let's switch the Maple Leafs with the Hurricanes. You put the Hurricanes in there, one of the Hurricanes players uh, commits a penalty, he goes to the box. If the Hurricanes are able to defend the two-minute power play without, without a goal being allowed, that is a penalty kill. And the Hurricanes are second in that. And that just and basically their second ranked penalty kill basically it backs up the fact that Carolina's defense is fantastic. Um, though an injury to one of their better players um, in between March and April, what are the, an injury to one of their best players, um, Andre Shvenkovich? Uh, oh God, I have to try and pass. An injury to one of their better players, Andre Shvenkovich. Zvenshnikov, I think I got it there. Zvenshnikov, um, it caused a it caused a mixed play. They they sometimes they would play well, sometimes they wouldn't play as well, and their lack of power play offense is really going to hurt, especially considering how bad they were in the last two months of the regular season. So it's going to be interesting to see how um, the Hurricanes play in the absence of Zvenshnikov, um, but I think they'll be okay in the, down the down the road. Uh, another team from the Metropolitan Division that has really made strides is the young and hungry New Jersey Devils. They got an incredibly great, um, they got incredibly great uh, trio of Jack Hughes, uh, Jesper Brat, and Nico Hischer that lead the offense. Um, and the addition of Timo Meyer in the um, in on the trade deadline it helped them a lot too. Though the biggest Achilles heel of the New Jersey Devils is going to be their lack of playoff experience. Most of these New Jersey Devils are very young, like Hughes. They haven't even sniffed the postseason. So it's going to be big for them that they are able to play well, especially against the team that has a ton of playoff experience that I'm going to talk about next. One of the biggest keys for the Devils is going to be their goaltender, Vitek Vancecek. He's going to be key because he's been an incredible. He's been great in defending the net all season, and he, if the Devils want any chance to give their young guys the confidence to be able to play their game and be able to score, then Vanacek is going to have to play exceptionally well um, to be able to give them that confidence. And I alluded to this team a little bit ago before getting into them. 
But the Devils' opponent is going to be a very tough one. It's going to be the New York Rangers. The additions at the trade deadline of Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane, both have won Stanley Cups before, has been very, very crucial to them. <clears throat> Along with Mika Zibanejad and Chris Kreider, and uh, and their dominant goalie, one of the best in the league, Igor Shesterkin. Gosh, I'm so bad with names in the NHL. I'll get there. Their run, though, while they do have a lot of playoff experience from Tarasenko and Kane, their run is going to come down to the <clears throat> the their run is going to come down to Artemi Artemi Panarin. It's going to come down to him because there's there's stretches where he can look like an absolute stud, and there's this, then there's runs where he could just slump really hard. It's it's just it's all it always seems to be one or the other with Artemi Panarin. And he's going to be very important. If he can play well in the playoffs, then the New York Rangers could be a deadly force. To Last season, they went to the Eastern Conference Finals, came up short against the Lightning. If Panarin plays well, along with Zibanejad, Kreider, Tarasenko, Kane, Shostenko, if did I say it right? Shesterkin. Gosh. If they can all collectively play well, then the Rangers could easily make a run at the Stanley Cup. Rounding out the Metropolitan Division and the Eastern Conference, we have the Rangers' New York counterpart, the Islanders, who basically this whole entire season, they've been carried by their amazing goaltender, Ilya Sorokin. He's led the league in shutouts with six. He also records a .92 save percentage. That basically is just how many shots he saves um, compared to how many shots he al- or how many goals he allows. <clears throat> he um, just, uh, so. Sorokin's been so good for the Islanders, but what's really been the Islanders' Achilles heel is their offense. The defense, their defense, the the defense of um, Sorokin and their uh, the, just the overall defense is going to be key, and they're going to need to perform offensively because this past season they averaged fewer than three goals a game, not just throughout a specific period, throughout the entire season. So they're going to their offense is really going to need to step it up to. Um, to play a team like the Carolina Hurricanes, who are incredibly good offensively. <clears throat> and one of their key players is going to be the um, one of their biggest paid stars, Bo Horvat. He's, he, I believe, and well, I kind of took this a little bit from the ESPN article I mentioned a little bit ago. But, you know, looking at what he can bring to, what looking at what Bo Horvat can bring to the table, he's going to be very important to the Islanders postseason wrong postseason run along with their other important offensive players uh they had three players score over 20 goals this season and i can't remember their names i apologize for that but overall if the islanders can maintain their defensive play and if they can excel offensively or at least to a level that um, allows them to uh win some games they could be a dark horse moving on to the western conference colorado avalanche the defending stanley cup champions they've been battered all season long but they're looking to defend their title. Um, Alex Alexander Georgie, he's going to be key. Cal McCarr's injury could be big as well. They also going their two biggest point scorers, which were Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen. They're going to be very big for their a playoff push. They've also got really good um, supporting pieces such as J T Confer, uh, Turi Lankanen, Devin Taos. I know it's pronounced like Jonathan Toes. I don't remember. I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I'm so bad at this. And Valerie Nishuskin. They're all going to be very big for Colorado's um, for Colorado's um, attempt to repeat as champions. Can they do it? Probably because 
as long as Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen can remain um, healthy, they can roll. They can roll, and they'll be. And I think if those two can remain healthy and play well, they can roll through the Western Conference. <clears throat> Next team is the Dallas Stars, and this team for for the past uh, few years has lived and died by their goalie Jake Odinger. Now the Stars have a dominant offense to back up Odinger. Um, they got guys like Jason Robertson, Jamie Benn, Joe Pavelski, Rupe Hintz, and Miro Heiskanen. They've also got a great good defensive tandem of Colin Miller and Yanni Hakanpa. They've got a lot of pieces that really that really puts them um, that really points to them as being like, hey, Dallas could really make some moves because their struggles have again have always been offensively they made it to the stanley cup finals at least i think they did against the tampa bay lightning in 2020 but their issue was they just didn't have enough offense to compete and that's always been their issue now with jake ottinger continue to being uh, continuing to be a dominant force in the net they also have a mass amount of offense <clears throat> that i just mentioned that could play a part into a dallas stanley cup run uh, the next team, who is the Dallas, who is Dallas's opponent in <clears throat> the uh, in the first round, is the Minnesota Wild, and they're coming in hot. Um, though while they are coming in hot, their leading scorer uh, Kirill Kaprizov was injured, and while he did go down with an injury, they've kept pace. They could score at a good pace with. Um, and they could score at a good pace offensively. They've been well with Kaprizov's sideline. And the <clears throat> and the goalie tandem of Marc-Andre Fleury and Philip Gustafson have been well with goaltending. Though, while they've kept the pace with Kaprizov injured, can they keep it going into the playoffs? Because while because while it's important that they've kept their pace that they were at when Kaprizov was um, hurt, they continue to keep that pace. Can they take it to the playoffs? Because the playoffs is a whole different element um, compared to regular season NHL. It's whole different environment. That will be the biggest key to the Minnesota Wild. Um, a lot, the, the three big players in the series to watch are going to be Matt Boldy, Joel Eriksenek, and Mats Zuccarello. They're going to be very big for this team. And the final team within this division, the Seattle Kraken. In their second ever season, as, as the Seattle Kraken, last year they were really bad. This year they're in the postseason, and it's not just it's not just one guy that played extremely well. Though Jared McCann did play very well with 40 goals, it was a whole collective effort. They got guys, they got a mix of youth guys such as Matthew Matthew Beniers and Daniel Spring, and they've also got um, veterans like Jordan Eberle and Yanni Gord. They've got a whole bunch of guys. Um, that have collectively come together and led the Kraken to the postseason. What's really going to stick out for the Kraken, however, is can their goaltending hold up? Because their goaltending has been their Achilles heel all season long. And while, while yes, they've had a great mix of youth and vets coming together and um, performing well for them, their goaltending has really, really been shaky. So... For the Kraken to make any sort of noise, and especially if they want a chance to defeat the defending Stanley Cup champions, they're going to need to. Re the goaltending is really going to need to up their game in the postseason. And finally, moving on to the last division, I think the last, um, I think the last division was the Central Division. I'm not good with the division names, as I said, I'm not a hockey whiz. I'm just picking up stuff I read. 
<clears throat> but the, but I know the final division is the Pacific Division, <clears throat> and the final or the first team within the Pacific Division is the Vegas Golden Knights. They've got a great tandem, the great trio of Jack Eichel, who, if anybody from Bonaventure listening to this, I'm sorry that I mentioned him because I know people up here don't like Jack Eichel. Um, along with Eichel, they've got Jonathan Marchessault and Chandler Stevenson. They've been playing well. They've got um, a Riley Smith. they got good defensemen like Alex Petrangelo and Shea Theodore. And what's really going to be the X factor for the Vegas Golden Knights is the re- return of Mark Stone. Because Mark Stone was one of their biggest components in the regular season. He went down and it really affected them. Now he's on his way back and he may well be on his way to starting or, pl- or at least playing, it's a bit weird between like starting line and all that. Um, just know that the starting lineups or whatever you want to call them in hockey, the starting lines is what they're called, they get interesting. But anyways, it's going to be very important for Mark Stone to come in and provide the uh, boost that he does for the Vegas Golden Knights, um, considering they really missed his presence throughout most of the, <clears throat> throughout most of the season. Next up, Connor McDavid. Can he lead the charge for the Edmonton Oilers? The Edmonton Oilers, they've probably been the hottest team going into the NHL postseason. They're 18-2-1 since March 1st. And they're and they have one of probably the best trio in the NHL. All above 100 points scored. Connor McDavid with one of the probably one of the best seasons in NHL history. Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. If the Oilers can maintain their torrid stretch at the end of the po- at the end of the uh, season and if and what's really been their Achilles heel in the playoffs has been defense but their defense has really come up big in their late season stru- in their late season success if they can maintain that you know don't be shocked if they can make a run of the Stanley Cup because this team is definitely dangerous offensively with McDavid Dreisaitl and RNH however if they can maintain a good defensive stance they can roll with the best of them, and they could definitely make a run in the Stanley Cup. The second to last team, and the well, the second to last team in the Pacific Division and overall is the Los Angeles Kings. They've made moves in the net. Um, they recently let go of longtime goalie Jonathan Quick, but two goalies have really filled in well with Phoenix Copley and the trade deadline acquisition of Eunice Corpisalo. Their offense has been a consistent effort, and they've been good, but. What's really important is that their goalie, their two top goalies that I just mentioned, Copley and Corpistalo, they have little to no playoff experience. They have very little. Copley has never played in a playoff game before, while Corpistalo has only played in nine in, in his entire career. So so it's going to be important to watch these guys and see, are they going to break? Are they going to fold? Because if they do, then it's really going to be tough for the Kings to face a team like the Oilers. And again, the Oilers have, as I mentioned, that were probably one of the best trios, if not the best trio in the NHL right now. So it's going to be interesting to see how those three do against that goalie tandem, depending on who gets the start. It probably will be Corpisalo or it could be Copley, but I think it would be Corpisalo because of his, you know, minimal playoff experience, but minimal playoff experience is better than none. And finally, the last team in the NHL playoffs, the Winnipeg Jets. They are throwing into the battle with the Vegas Golden Knights right now. Vegas Golden Knights right now, and right now they're a mixed bag. They could go all. The, they have the chance to go all the way because they were one of the best teams to start the season. 
but they could also go home after the first round because they've also had bad spurts throughout the season. They struggle to consistently score and get shots on goal, and they have the lowest power play success rate, 19.3%. Basically, that's how many times they succeed in their power plays. They have the lowest um, power play success rate, again, 19.3% of any team in the playoffs. So when you look at it, the Winnipeg Jets are like um are very very like they're very hot and cold. They can either make a run all the way to like the Western Conference Finals, heck, even the um Stanley Cup Finals, but they could also get bounced in the first round by the Vegas Golden Knights in embarrassing fashion. They're very mixed in what could happen with them. But I, I just don't feel like they're really going to make much noise. Um, one thing that is going to be important, though, is the performance of Connor Hellebuck. He has been their stalwart in the goal, in the net for a long time. And if he can play well, if he can play at an insane level to allow the Jets to um, at least score some goals, and if he can play at an insane level and just stop every shot at all, they could have a chance. But I just really don't see the Jets going, much, Jets going far this postseason. With that be all being said, here are my picks for the first round. I have the Bruins over the Panthers. This isn't some team bias. This is just me looking at it like the Bruins are overall the better team. Um, and while the Panthers have been hot, the Bruins have been hotter than anybody at all throughout the entire season. <clears throat> and I think they're going to continue their march to a possible Stanley Cup. I've got the Tampa Bay Lightning over the Toronto Maple Leafs. I feel like despite the Lightning struggles over the past uh, few game or the past 12 games, I think that they're going to be ready for the playoffs because they've been in this environment consistently before and they know how to compete in the playoffs. They've shown it many, many times before. I have the Rangers over the Devils. I just feel in that matchup, the... <clears throat> <clears throat> the experience factor is going to play a huge, huge part in this series. I just mentioned like many, Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane have both won Stanley Cup before, and most of the New Jersey Devils have never even, most of the young Devils have never even sniffed the postseason. I just think that they're, um, that the the Rangers' older veteran. Um, presence is going to be there for them and it's going to allow them to advance the postseason because again they've competed at, they generally they've competed better and they've had more experience than the Devils have. Rounding out the East I have the uh, Carolina Hurricanes over the New York Islanders I think this is going to be a pretty a pretty good series um, probably like six games ish um, maybe five, but it'll be. But I think it'll be competitive because I think um, the Islanders' defense is potent enough to uh, keep the Carolina Hurricanes at bay. But I think that the Islanders just aren't going to have enough offensive firepower to compete with the Hurricanes, and eventually the Hurricanes will move on. Moving over to the West, I have the Vegas Golden Knights over the New York Jets. I think Vegas is going to win that fairly easily i just don't think winnipeg has a good enough offense to keep up with uh the golden knights i have the edmonton oilers over the los angeles kings i think that the um i i think that the uh inexperience of the king's goaltenders it despite um corpus Allo getting a ton of, or getting some experience i still think that um it's going to play a part in um, really big part in this series, and it's going to be the difference maker for the Edmonton Oilers with them moving on. 
I've got the Dallas Stars over the Minnesota Wild. I I do believe that um, the Minnesota Wild are going to keep their pace. I think they've done well enough to keep their pace with the loss of um, Kirill Kaprizov. However, however, I think the Dallas Stars are just too good um, right now. Um, I think that Jake Ottinger is going to come up big, or he's going he's going to have some spurts of bad games because I do feel like this will be a very competitive series. It could be six or seven games, but I think that Dallas will overall get the win, get it done. And finally, I have the Colorado Avalanche over the Seattle Kraken. Um, again, Seattle, I think it's going to be a very good atmosphere atmosphere seeing playoff hockey in Seattle, which is very which would be very cool. But I think that the Avalanche are going to click at the very right time. They've been here. They're trying. They're willing, and they're they got a fire under them that they want to go and defend their cup. And I think that they're going to bring that fire in full force with them. To, against Seattle Kraken and they'll take that series and that is it everybody uh, I really appreciate all of you listening to this right now if you made it all the way through you're the absolute best you really are you guys are the absolute best if you made it all this way um, I really appreciate all of you listening again uh, I'm really excited to get this journey started with you all and with that being said this is the first episode of the Seabiz show that is all and I'll be signing off and I'll see you all soon thank you